Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and there's a reason they call the comedian on today's show the best comedy podcast guest of all time. Paul F. Tompkins has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours improvising on podcasts like Comedy Bang Bang and its various spinoffs, sometimes as himself, but more often in character as real-life figures like Andrew Lloyd Webber and Werner Herzog, or his own fully developed creations like the vigilante fanboat operator J.W. Stillwater, or, of course, the reluctant children's clown Big Chunky Bubbles. You might also know him as the voice of the lovably dim golden retriever Mr. Peanut Butter on Netflix's BoJack Horseman. All of this might sound completely ridiculous to anyone who hasn't spent just as many hours listening to Paul as I have. But in this interview, I think you will find that he is a seriously deep thinker about the comedy world and his place in it, From getting his start on the iconic sketch series Mr. Show, to his unfortunate year working alongside Bill Maher, to learning to be comfortable with what has turned out to be a pretty perfect level of fame and respect. We ended up getting into some heavy stuff in this episode about the big political divide in comedy right now, and what it's like to watch your comedy partner become a full-blown insurrectionist. But at heart, Paul has always embraced pure silliness on stage as evidenced by perhaps his most famous stand-up bit about peanut brittle. Love canned peanut brittle, love it. I love it because you can get it anywhere. You just see it all over the place. You can buy it at the gas station. You can buy it at a greeting card shop. You can buy it by the side of the highway. There's just peanut brittle in cans all over the place. So yes, when you say to me, Paul, would you like some canned peanut brittle? I have no reason to be suspicious. Whoa, why did I just say that? I owe you an apology. Here you are, nice enough to offer me some canned peanut brittle, a snack we've established is very common. And I, I bring suspicion into it? Shame on me. So, if your offer still stands, yes. I would love to enjoy some canned peanut brittle, a snack so common it might as well be water for how much you find it laying around on God's green earth. No, no, no. I will open up the can. You have done enough. Paul, welcome to the show. I feel like um, I want to start by by saying that you must feel a lot of pressure when you are a guest on other people's podcasts because you are known as the best comedy podcast guest in the world. So does that, do you, do you feel that, uh, that weight on your shoulders? No, because I don't believe it. So <laughs> that, that frees me up. <laughs> Any podcast I guest on, especially, uh, um, ones that I am a fan of will be the one episode of the podcast that I do not listen to. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you were there, so why listen? <laughs> 
That would be ridiculous. So yeah, it's it's good to see you. We I was looking back. It's been it's been a while. We met in 2017 when I was writing the oral history of comedy Bang Bang, and I got to sit in on the 500th taping in the room with with oh, all wow. of you, which is still a just an all timer moment for me. Uh, was was pretty surreal having listened to so much of that show and then actually being there for it. I've now had everyone on this podcast. That was before this podcast even existed. I've now had everyone on this podcast who was in that room, except for Lauren Lapkus, now that I've had you. So, so, uh, Ooh, you'll never Scott get Scott Ackerman, uh, Nick Kroll, Jason Manzukis, John Gabris. I'm probably forgetting someone, Mary Holland, no Lauren Lapkus, but I'm, um, so that if, once I get her, then I will have completed and then we can just end this podcast. She is your great white whale. I hope that you are able to <laughs> harpoon her. Yeah, that would seems wrong, but yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, it was it was really fun to get to talk to you for that, um, and and be there for that. Um, you know, I've spent so much time listening to that podcast. You've spent, I think, hundreds of hours at this point on that podcast. Although not officially, I know you've only been on a couple times, right? Uh, I don't <laughs> want to. I don't want to ruin anything, but <laughs> we finally stopped pretending that after I think I, I think after 10 years when, yeah, when you're like this Scott is Ackerman getting and I will, absurd. we'll do the best doves at the end of the year and then you know after a while I was like okay let's just admit that these are characters <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what I, feel are we like, doing? I feel like you're, you're always kind of uh, you're always kind of trying to punch through that uh, that veil on that show in a way. Yeah, it's not children's programming. We don't. <laughs> we're not going to ruin anyone's childhood by saying it's made up. Um, so, how do you feel like all of that time spent uh, on that podcast, improving in character like that? How do you feel like it's impacted your you know comedic sensibility and, and your sort of abilities as a comedian? Because it, it must have an impact. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's what got me into improv. You know, I, I had only done, um, uh, you know, I come from stand up and had never done improv properly before. And that doing characters on that show was how I learned to do improv, essentially, by kind of, you know, sort of being thrown into the deep end of having to keep a, uh, a character going and to agree to everything that was thrown at me. Um, but also from you know, being the least experienced improviser in the room most times and learning from other people. I like, I would take something away from the other people in the room every single time that I would record, you know. Uh, and it was, and it's just a, you know, it just made me, it made me more present in my comedy and uh, it kind of ruined my stand up in a way because <laughs> really? i yeah well the more i the more i started doing improv the the more attractive that became of just showing up with nothing yeah, and well, getting to play with other people and preparation yeah right? exactly and if you bomb you're not alone and it's also over so quickly you know um and and also it's the the discipline of it is you are supposed to let it go you're not supposed to dwell on it. There's nothing to rewrite. So you, you have to just say, well, I'll do better next time. And, uh, and let it go, just shake it off and, and say, because that's part of the game. Part of the game is that you're going to fail sometimes. And everyone understands that. Like as much as the audience wants it to be funny, if something doesn't hit, it's a different, not, it's a different miss than it is in standup. When you when you when you do a joke, a, you do a bit in stand up. It takes more time. It's just you, and then when it doesn't land, people are like, 
does this guy not know what he's doing? Maybe he's not good at his job. We paid money for this. Yeah. Well, there, I guess there's more forgiveness around improv too, right? I mean, for sure. sort of, it's there's, built a, in. there's a, there's a magic trick to it that people appreciate when it does work. And maybe when it, when it doesn't, you're like, well, they're just making it up. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then of course there's the people that refuse to believe that improv is real. And you know, the, well, you must've written some of that. And it's like, no, this is the whole point. <laughs> This yeah. is the whole point. <laughs> there was something sort of revelatory for me about listening to Comedy Bang Bang in terms of the improv as an audio medium um, as opposed to, you know, live improv, which is, you know, really what had I'd encountered before that. Um, there seems like there's something so freeing about it. And it almost reminds me of animation in the sense of like, you can do anything you can, and, and even more so you can, your, your imagination kind of can run wild as a listener in terms of what's happening and you don't need wigs and costumes and, and all of that stuff. Um, so was that freeing for you, the idea of doing um, in audio as opposed to on stage or on TV or, or any of for that? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I love theater of the mind stuff. I always have. And, and to be able to, to do that kind of silly stuff and realize that they're, they're, are no limits at all, and uh, the audience will um, will fill that in. And especially after doing characters and getting to see what people thought the characters looked like, you know, before, uh, you know, the, the downside, of course, is sometimes we do live shows and it's like, oh, I have to come up with a costume now for this person. You've done a lot of characters and, you know, characters you've made up, impressions um, based on real people. Is there is there one that you were doing... What was the first one that sort of like clicked in for you of like, this is, this makes sense. This is how this should be done um, in terms of when you were playing a character on the show. Well, probably Andrew Lloyd Webber was, was the first one. And that, because that one I built, uh, you know, not only uh, my version of this known person, but also building a, a relationship with Scott Ackerman as the host. And, um, the, the sort of rules of their relationship and how they, how they deal with each other and do they like each other? Do they not like each other? Um, that kind of thing was, you know, from the, the second appearance on, it was like, oh, we know each other, this character and this host know each other now. And so now they, now their, their shared history begins, um, and so they are going to relate to each other like people who know each other, as opposed to just the sort of interview style thing of a one-off character. And, and that I found really, really fun. And that continues to be really enjoyable as, the, as repeat characters have their own relationship with Scott. Scottrick, you may ask me anything. Mm. Nothing is out of bounds. Nothing is off limits. Mm. It's all, all's fair in love and war and this interview. Mm. We may chat about this, that, even the other thing, <laughs> which I have heretofore forbidden any, any journalist to ask me about. Right. All right. Well, let me try to... To delve deep, then I am because, an open book okay, and lyrics. I would love to ask you something, just maybe that no one has ever asked you before. I dare uh, you to do okay. so. All right, who would you say are the two main characters in Jesus Christ Superstar? Ah, this is an excellent question. No one has ever asked me this. Usually, everyone just knows. Yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber is also a good one because he's a known person, but not like too known in the sense of we're not like. Uh, you know, getting hung up on whether it's an accurate Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, yeah, impression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
um, as opposed to Werner Herzog. Which it is you, not, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're Werner Herzog, which is very accurate, but um, but is someone who's like, we, we know his voice so well, so you kind of have to to nail that one. Or get close to it, at least, which I hope I do. As I was researching for this, I had not encountered the clip of him listening to you do it and then reacting to it, which was quite enjoyable. Was You've heard that, I assume. I have heard of it. I have seen a transcript of it. I have still yeah. not listened to it. <laughs> On because purpose? it's just Yeah, I just can't. I can't bring myself to listen to it. It's too weird. <laughs> Though the aisles are wide, it is impossible to avoid physical contact with your fellow shoppers. It is a grotesque parody of the bazaar at Marrakesh, as if dumb animals had been granted only the amount of sentience required to mock humanity. <laughs> Be sure to get the dark chocolate peanut butter cups. They are right by the register. <laughs> what? How do you make of that? Well, the accent could be better, but it's a very funny text. That's that's good stuff. I, I thought so, too. It. I thought so, too. What's his name? Paul F. Tompkins. My congratulations. So we're talking ahead of SF Sketch Fest, and you're doing you know several different shows at that festival. I actually just relocated from L.A. to uh, to the Bay Area, so I'm excited to come check out some some shows at the festival, which I've been to before, but now I get to, to go to more of it. Have you been uh, doing shows at the at this festival for for a long time? And what is what is your sort of connection to it? Yeah, for for as long as I can remember. I mean, it's been I think this is their 21st or second year, I think something like that. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I was at the first one, but I think I was in there early on doing stand up and then um, over time doing all of my various different shows. And uh, I, I just love it. I look forward to it every year. You know, it's it's so many great venues and people and uh i get to i get to do so many different things so many different uh, you know these shows that are different parts of my life with different people and you know this is what i this is what i always wanted to do you know is is i wanted to from from when i was a little kid and i'm i'm actually getting to do it and i have to i have to really remind myself of that sometimes that i've actually made my childhood dreams come true even though it's now it's my job but um, but Sketchfest is something that always reminds me of that, that it's so much fun and it, I really do get to do so many diverse things, uh, under the umbrella of comedy and, and, uh, yeah, I just can't wait. I mean, Sketchfest is a lot more than sketch comedy, but that is really where your, where your roots are, right? In, in, is that how you started as, as a, as a sketch comic? Yeah, I went from stand-up uh, in Philly uh, to Los Angeles, and then after uh, I moved out here, I got my first big job was Mr. Show on HBO, and that's where I learned to, uh, uh, you know, really learn to write sketch and and uh, and 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 you know, I'd always loved sketch comedy, and so to be part of a sketch show was, um, you know, was a thrill, and and also a, a such a um, a. a had such a huge impact on me creatively because Bob and Bob Odenkirk and David Cross were, uh, great and, uh, patient teachers, um, for me and some of the other guys who were kind of new, uh, you know, up and coming sketch people. And, um, you know, there are lessons that I learned on that show that I still apply to stuff that I do today. 
Is there a story behind how you ended up being part of that show? I mean, it's such a such an iconic uh, show, and and uh, you know, one that that I think has been so influential. So, how did you? What was what was sort of the origin story of you getting on that show? It uh, well, it's it's a story that was not that interesting, but has become uh, slightly more interesting based on <laughs> recent events in our nation's history. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, so you know. So why are you asking me this, Matt? No, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know what you're alluding to, but I don't know the the story. Uh, my I when I moved to Los Angeles, I met a guy uh, who became my sketch writing partner. We we did a bunch of stuff that we wrote together, and then Bob and David saw that and hired us. Uh, to write on the on the show in the second season, and um, that uh, uh, former partner of mine uh, was present at the January sixth Capitol riot. Yeah, well, we're we're talking just a few days after the uh, the anniversary here. You're talking about uh, to happy anniversary to us all. Yeah, to about Jay Johnston, um, who I you know I, you and Scott have I think almost joked about it on comedy bang bang uh because you both have the sort of shared as we have almost joked about it here and now Uh, we're done uh, oh well i mean okay (laughs) but i mean it's it it's i think it's 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 worthy of some discussion because he oh sure but not with me you you don't want to talk about it no i don't (laughs) well okay i'll say that uh that i was pretty shocked to to see you know that news and and um i think it was actually the daily beast that that sort of identified the fact that he was uh, in a FBI wanted poster uh, circulating online. Um, I mean, it's it's someone who you were pretty close to uh, a a long time ago. So I I, I imagine you were shocked as well. (laughs) As I think anybody would would be somebody you haven't been in touch with in a while. And then you see them at the Capitol riot. I think that's a shocking thing for sure. Coming up. Paul does not have anything else to say about his former friend turned Capitol rioter, but he does share his thoughts about what it was like to help Bill Maher launch Real Time on HBO, and why he thinks that host was just as terrible back then as he is now. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of Paul F. Tompkins' many collaborators, like Mr. Show's David Cross, Comedy Bang Bang's Scott Ackerman, BoJack Horseman's Allison Brie, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, 
please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Paul F. Tompkins. I don't think you consider yourself a political comedian, but you obviously, you know, you have politics and you and you've talked about it in in some ways. Another of your your really early uh writing gigs I was interested to learn was on uh Bill Maher's show. Oh boy. Um yeah. which uh you were that was from the very beginning of of real time, right? How did you Yeah, that, that was, was the that... first season. Um Scott Carter, uh who was the executive producer of the show, was a um became a fan of mine like seeing me do shows uh in LA and then when the show was starting, he offered me this job. Uh, that was to do a sort of um, standalone segment in the middle of the show as a sort of kind of palate cleansery kind of thing. It was to be after the the main roundtable discussion that Bill would have with his guests. And then I would do this sort of uh, lighter kind of, you know, uh, current events bit. And then the show would kind of go into its preparation for landing. And so there would be more sort of uh, structured departments and stuff like that, leading to Bill laying down his righteous new rules. And then um, (laughs) I forget what his final thing, I guess he did like a final Jerry Springer final thought kind of thing. And, you know, I was very, uh, I was hesitant to take that gig because it was not something I'd done before. Uh, I, I was not a political person. I did not do current events comedy, but I thought, you know what? I, uh, Scott Carter believes in me just because uh, be, being afraid to do it is not a good enough reason not to do it. So I said, okay, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to throw myself into this. I, uh, you know, my memory of it is that it did not go well. I mean, obviously they did not have me back, but it was not, it was not, I feel like I, it was something I could do better today probably, but at the time, like learning to do that while the show was airing was, uh, difficult, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not ideal. <laughs> um, so, you know, I gave him my best shot. It was not, it was not a good fit for me, but I, I really tried. Speaking of great stand-up comedians, I have stolen one of my own for my selfish amusement here. I saw this guy in a club recently and I said, this guy has to be on this show every night. He is that good. He's going to be writing and producing our feature story every week. Say hello to America's new friend, Paul F. Tompkins, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, tell the folks briefly what you have coming up for us in the feature story in a little bit from now, and do it with enough time so I can sneak the panel on stage, will you? Absolutely, Bill. <laughs> folks, I will be getting uh, Bill and the rest of America up to speed on just how terrified we should be now. And I'm not spoiling anything by telling you, very terrified. Um, I've got a piece on terrorism preparedness that is sure to make anyone cut their own grandmother's throat for a roll of duct tape. Thank you for getting us in a good mood, sir. Absolutely. You you said you could do it better today. Would you want to go back and and work with Bill Maher again today? I mean... I I could do that type of thing better today? Yeah, yeah. I would never in a million years go back to working... Anywhere near Bill Maher. <laughs> was he uh, was he difficult to work with at that time? No, he's just not. not I, I didn't have any personally. I did not have any difficulties with him. I just don't enjoy what he does, and uh, it wasn't fun to be around. And he's he's kind of um, you know uh, he's not the he's not the friendliest guy in the world. And uh, it's not like he was ever actively 
uh, rude or unpleasant to me personally, but, uh, but yeah, not an energy that I like. Not yeah. It's interesting like. to, to hear that it was like that then, because I think the, the sort of, uh, the conventional wisdom is that he's sort of evolved into this, um, sort of leading voice against woke culture and has kind of taken a turn to the right in, in much more recent years, but it sounds like maybe that it's, it was always, uh, there under the under the surface well, yeah, well, B- or Bill, at the surface i don't think that bill maher has really changed at all i think that um his his politics uh, and you could say this for most people to varying degrees um to, to all of us to varying degrees his politics really are how does this affect me bill maher <laughs> and so that's why there's certain things he doesn't care about because it doesn't extend past his his uh, uh bubble of empathy so like things with kids or whatever he doesn't give a shit because he doesn't have kids, he doesn't want kids. He doesn't like the idea of kids. So, um, but he likes animals. So, animal things very important to him. Right. Yeah. But that is, an, uh, I- an issue uh, that affects somebody who has a lifestyle that's different than his. He really doesn't care unless it is something that can encroach eventually encroach upon his lifestyle. And I mean, as I say, we're all like that to varying degrees. But there are certain things where you do have to have empathy for other it's it's the old you know planting a tree uh an old man planting a tree uh, uh whose shade he will never enjoy that kind of thing it's like just because this doesn't affect me it does affect these other people and i don't want them to be miserable you know what i mean well it's kind That's, of just it's like not it's, that hard to do yeah it's also just fundamentally the difference between liberals and conservatives even though bill maher still i think would call himself a liberal in some ways but that liberals, that, that empathy thing i mean is, is pretty fundamental yeah and uh, you know the the conservative thing is that they have empathy towards things that don't exist like just these phantom things <laughs> and so it's it's unborn babies but not actual babies it's you know the the threat of what could happen with drag queens even though that's not happening you know it's like it's that kind of shit like they make up a thing and then they say we have to it hasn't happened yet but we have to protect against it you know trans people in bathrooms and shit like that it's just like you you're it's convenient for you to say we're worried about other people when it's a thing that's not happening at all. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like there is this divide in the in the comedy world now um politically where there are sort of comedians on either side of this line? I mean there's there's been a lot of talk about sort of a a comedy civil war or or things sort of to that extreme, but do you do you feel that being part of the community? Like most things, I think that it's always been there, but it's been um really stirred up to a crazy degree by social media um because before social media when i was coming up there were always dudes who wanted to tell you what real comedy was and you know it was one dude with a microphone you know and that was the way that you know it's club comedy and that's the way it is that's the real comedy and what we're seeing now is just that jacked up to a thousand you know, where it's like, you know, b- people saying a comedian's duty is to offend. And it's like, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> that's not that's not true. That's like, not the job. Yes. And it's also just offend, period. Like, it doesn't matter who. Like, what, what do we, you know, the idea, if you're, th- that idea comes from speaking truth to power, which that idea has gone completely fallen by the wayside now it's just like offend as much as possible you're you're pretending these people are in power like trans people saying 
hey, I'd prefer that you call me this. Like, no, we can't let this happen. You know, that kind of shit. It's just like, you're not, you're being, it's just bullying. It's just, it, you're just being a troll. It's not, you're not speaking truth to power. And again, it's like that conservative idea of, but it could lead to this. Like, first they'll say, you know, you have to respect my pronouns. Then they'll say into the gulag with you. And it's like, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's that partisan thing too. It's like, it, it's very similar in a way of the w- same way that people get dug into their holes. It seems like that's, that's what's happening in, in comedy is someone says, okay, sure. you know, I'm going to, this is going to be my identity now. I'm going to be the, part it's of all this doubling camp. down. It's all doubling down. Yeah. 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 Like Ricky Gervais won that golden globe. I, know. For, I was just going to, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Oh my God. And the clip is like him talking about his previous special. Like that's what these people are doing now. Okay. You didn't like that. I'm, 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 I, this comedy is all about me and my personality, my cult of personality. And if you didn't like me saying this before, now I'm going to say more of it. And it's just going to get cheers from people because the idea is it offends somebody else or it hurts somebody else's feelings. And that's comedy, you know, and it's a, it's a drag. It's a drag that it's not, it's not all of comedy, but it is the comedy that gets the most attention now, which is really unfortunate. And, you know, it's, it's these, I think there is a thing when you get so wealthy, you, you don't like anyone telling you that you're wrong and you have a platform. And so you're going to make it all about, you know, telling people that you don't get to tell me that I'm wrong and you're worthless. And in the case of Ricky Gervais, it's like a guy that, you know, such diminishing returns from, from the office to now. I know it's, it is, it's just, it's sad. And in so many ways, it's like him, you know, and, and Chappelle both, made brilliant comedy early in their careers and then just to see where it's ended up and not only and to see where it's ended up and how popular it is is the other side of it which is really kind of disturbing is like not only is it so it's like sad and popular <laughs> it's not it's not like they're sad and 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 languishing in their careers i know but it's like look there's a pot for every lid and you know um if if you want to get out there and spew a bunch of lazy comedy that's mostly just about doubling down on your previous opinions that people pointed out to you, not only harmful, but also not that funny, then, okay, there's going to be people that are that are there for that solely because it bothers somebody else. And then, um, you know, and then where does it leave comics like you and others who, you know, aren't doing that and, and you know, maybe have, does, is it harder to find an audience if you're not doing that in this current moment? You know what? It's not. I mean, that, and that is, that is the other side of the coin is like, they're, they're just, just as there are people that are there, that are there for that kind of thing. Um, there's also people that are there for something else. And, you know, so I, I going around doing shows, uh, not just in LA, but, um, all over the country, people show up and it's fun, you know, and it, it's, it's comforting to know that, that there are still people who just want to see something that's fun and creative. People want to see something that's truly speaking truth to power. I'm not putting myself in that category, Um, but that there's all types of comedy. There's always been, and there always will be all types of comedy. There's no one right way to do comedy. You know, somebody recently quoted Patrice O'Neill you know, after the, 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 that um, review, the Guardian review of Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle's new specials, this dude said 
As Patrice O'Neill said, a good joke leaves 50% of the audience laughing and 50% of the audience horrified. Like, what? <laughs> that's an insane... <laughs> that's, that's, how you, so that's how you know it's good. <laughs> that's the definition of a good joke. <laughs> that's that's bananas. How do you think about your place in the in this comedy landscape? I mean, you've you've carved out a very unique career for yourself as you, as we've been talking about sketch and improv and and stand up. I mean, I feel like I have my own place, just like um, uh, anybody can have, you know. And when I was younger, I assumed that. I assumed the way my parents assumed that success meant you would be a household name. And then as, as I got in, I like actually got into the business, you know, I moved out here and and started working in um, the entertainment industry. I was like, Oh no, there's like, there's a whole other like sort of middle class um, that you can be where you are supporting yourself, doing what you love and uh, having a good time. You know, so I, I am lucky enough that I have I have enough of an audience that I can work, I can get enough work on TV to keep my health insurance, and I can be creatively free, you know, which is really, I mean, all you can ask for. And and it, it's it's I'm not I'm not being uh, I'm not trying to be totally blithe about that because, of course, I've had moments of doubt and fear and you know, buying into the um, the invisible ladder of show business that it's like, oh, no, I didn't go up to the next rung. And it's like, uh, you know what? Actually, it's fine because I'm still here. It's not like I <laughs> it's not like I lost my job being an entertainer. And, you know, there there is, uh, of course, there's a lot of ego stuff that you have to go through and, and you have to deal with that. But, you know, I, I'm a middle aged dude and, and I've mellowed a lot and look around and realize I have a really pretty great life, you know? Um, so, and I'm also past the point where I have to worry about that kind of success. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> where like yeah. I'm, I'm at a certain age where it's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to be the next, you know, shining bright face. Um, I'm like, I'm into the second half now. Yeah, <laughs> so I well, don't, you can, it's you kind can of relax. Relief. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's a real, not to have to worry about that anymore. And like, what I'm really hoping for is that in, you know, 10 to 20 years, I will really come into my own as like the funny old guy on a sitcom, you know, that mm, like, mm, yeah. and, then, and then for the button, we cut over to this old guy who says this sassy thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, that's yeah. a fine life for me. I thought uh, you're the, the perfect sort of encapsulation of your level of fame was uh, your role as yourself on You're the Worst, the, uh, the, the series. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah, for sure. Which kind of, which kind of nailed uh, something very, very specific there. Was, was, I know. That, uh, was that a call that you liked getting the, to come oh, play yourself so on much, that show? Yeah, I, I was a huge fan of the show. And so first to hear myself, my name mentioned on the show was really before wild. Before you were on it, yeah. Yeah, before I was on it. And, um, and then when they actually asked me to do it... Uh, and, you know, not only was it a lot of fun, but it was also fun to imagine uh, all the people that were watching that show had no idea I was a real person, <laughs> that I was playing myself <laughs> and not just a made up comedian named Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, was, funny, um, yeah. yeah it was really fun. Um, I feel like we have to at least touch on uh, Mr. Peanut Butter and Bojack Horseman as well, because it's it's one of my favorites. Um, and uh, I mean, the animation is a whole other side of uh, the whole the comedy world um, now that can be a very uh, important um, important thing as well. Has that been meaningful for you to have that in your life? For sure. And you know, again, like a 
a, a, a childhood dream that I did not know I had to do voices on, on animated shows is, is so exciting and so much fun and it's easy and enjoyable. Like you go in and, and you know, most pretty much all the shows will let you kind of mess around. Like you do it written a few times and then you can experiment and try different things. And, uh, I, I, it's so, it's so much fun. And it's been very rewarding for me. And, and I appreciate that anytime, like any, any of the shows that kind of spin out of that Lauren Bouchard, um, Bob's Burgers universe, you know, the, those writers always end up getting their own shows at some point and all, all of them call me to come in and do guest parts. And it's, it's very touching and, um, you know, very, uh, very much appreciated. The character Mr. Peanut Butter on Bojack Horseman specifically, I think, ended up being this sort of long-running, really emotional journey of a of a character that you went on, probably the longest period of time that you've played one character like that. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what was that like to kind of get that opportunity, even though it was playing a sort of silly cartoon dog, but but being able to really put in that that emotional performance that I don't think um that maybe you you haven't gotten the opportunity to do elsewhere. No, not before or since. Really, it was it was um, uh, you know a thing that just it just kind of fell into my lap, and it was supposed to be just a um, uh, a guest role. And then, yeah, yeah, I was supposed to just be on every once in a while, and um, they kept writing stuff for me um, for the character. And and then after the first season, they retroactively made me a series regular. So I did not start out as a series regular. And then right before the show was about to uh, premiere, they said, hey, you know what? You're, you've become such a big part of the show that we're, we're going to make you a full regular, um, which was, you know, that was so flattering and so meaningful to me. Um, and, you know, such a uh, such an unexpected gift because I didn't know Raphael Bob Waxberg. And, you know, he was the one that um, that put me in the show and I didn't know anything about it. And I did not, I just thought, oh, this is like a grown up, you know, animated show. I get it. And then I think it was the, the third episode, I think is if I, if memory serves is the first episode that kind of takes a real, a like hard dramatic turn. I was so surprised and like, wow, this is not, this is like, this is very interesting. I did not see this coming. And then as it went on, I seeing where the, the levels that it was going to the, the deep dramatic emotional levels that it was going to uh, it became more and more exciting to do. And it got to the point where I stopped uh, reading the scripts beforehand. So I would just read them at the table reads so that I could experience it um, the way an audience would experience it. Is there a scene that Mr. Peanut Butter is, is in that really stands out in your memory as, as either really funny or really surprisingly emotional or just something that really feels like, yeah, all the relationship stuff with, um, with Diane when they were breaking up, um, and then the relationship stuff with pickles, where this sounds insane. Yeah, when you when you describe it, especially for anyone listening who has not watched the show, it's gonna be like, what are they talking about? I know, I know. Um, you know, when they are when he is kind of realizing stuff about himself, um, you know, what kind of what he does in relationships and what his his fatal flaws are and everything was, you know, it was uh, it was so. I, I, you know, I never get to do stuff like that. And um, yeah, it was, it was really, really enjoyable. And when I hear your car in the driveway, it is the best part of my day. I mean, I go insane. I know. 
And I love you so much. But you're never going to be my only priority like that. That's just not how I'm wired. I need to also live my life. Well, okay. Is it okay if I change and try new things and you still love me? And you just stay the same person you've always been and I still love you? Uh, yeah, that sounds good to me. Does that work for you? Yeah, I think that works. Just don't throw me any more surprise parties, okay? Uh, yeah, noted. <laughs> so now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to run through some questions uh, here, starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid growing up. Oh, my God. Oh, you know what? I have to say this, and this is uh, a nod to my friend River Butcher, Sesame Street. Um, I, I remember somebody asking... River one time about comedy influences and he said, he mentioned Sesame Street and I was like, hey, that's true. Like when I was a kid, like I, that, of course that show made me laugh. Like I loved it. Absolutely. So for sure, uh, Sesame Street for sure. Um, uh, fucking Bugs Bunny. Gotta throw him in there. <laughs> More people mentioned Bugs Bunny than, than you would think. Yeah. Gotta throw Looney Tunes in there. I mean, that shit was funny. Um, and, uh, and then later SCTV was huge for me. Uh, still is like always in my heart. Like that show, that show really pushed a button in me of, of just, just silliness, you know, just pure silliness. That was a huge childhood influence for me. Do you remember the first sketch for Mr. Show that you either wrote or it was your idea or something that like you really contributed to that you felt like, Oh, I think I, I, I really like, I've got something here that, that to contribute. Uh, I probably, the first thing that comes to mind is the, the megaphone singers, um, where Bob and David are these, these, uh, sort of dueling, um, uh, megaphone crooners, uh, and that, and the, um, <laughs> the East coast, West coast ventriloquist beef, um, are the two that really stand on my mind that I can remember. You know, I remember uh, very clearly there was a, a joke that I wrote um, for uh, Karen Kilgariff, who was playing the the wife of one of the ventriloquists. And, you know, she's at some press conference or something. And, you know, she was supposed to be playing this, like, slightly drunk uh, lady smoking at this press conference. And, um, you know, they ask her for a comment and her response is, oh, you men, the way that the first edit was, you know, it ended it, like we asked her for a comment and then it says, oh, you men. And then it cuts to the next thing. And I said, actually, it should let her say, oh, you men, and then just let it linger for a really long time until you realize she's not going to say anything else. And then everybody saw it and laughed, you know, in the room. And I was like, that was that was very gratifying. It was like, okay, this is this is how I pictured it, and it's happening, and I was not wrong <laughs> that this idea is funny. In the wake of these senseless deaths, Wally P. Doyle's widow is calling for peace among the puppeteers. Oh, you men. A nationwide peace conference being held at the Moto Court Lodge in Indianapolis now enters its second month. We are absolutely committed to peace. Yeah, this has been too hard. We've lost too many friends now. We're staying here until this feud is resolved. So what is the current status of the talks? Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, it's not up to us. It never was. You know, it's the little guys. You know, they're the ones that got to work this thing out. All we've ever wanted to do is entertain the nice people. That's right. <laughs> so far, after 36 days, no progress has been made. And with the ventriloquism industry shut down, people are forced to find other sources of entertainment. We've had a lot of people on this podcast who have made uh, guest appearances on Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, <laughs> you among them. So I'm always curious to know, what is it like improvising with Larry David? Uh, it was the best. It was the absolute best. And and he, what's so funny is, you know, so we, we're the first, you know, we do the first office scene and we're sitting there and, you know, he's across from me and we're just riffing and everything. Uh, and even the audition is fun, you know, because you go in and you're, he's not there, but you're, you're audition you're auditioning with the, the casting person. And, um, I think Jeff Garland was there and, and you're just, you know, riffing and all that. And I got the job and so we're actually shooting and we're just going and, and, you know, we're making each other laugh. And, um, I remember between, uh, takes at one point he said, this is the way it should be, right? <laughs> isn't this isn't this the best? And it's like th at this point, I think it was the eighth season or something, and he's still like he's still so pleased with yeah with <laughs> how easy created, and fun yeah. this is yeah. <laughs> and you know, and it's like you're in and out. You know, we we did it. I think like maybe five times each scene. You know, something like that. It it could not have been easier or more fun. He's so. He's nice to everybody that comes in because especially at that point, the show was an established thing. He doesn't have any idea who the fuck I am, you know, but he's he's very he, he's very he makes it uh, very relaxed and very uh, makes makes everyone very comfortable while doing very little. Like he doesn't it, he doesn't make a big show out of it. It's just like you can tell that he's having fun and, um, you know, which is that's. That's really all you need to do to put somebody at ease in that situation is like, no, I'm enjoying this. This is not just, you know, I know I'm the star of this thing, but I'm also having fun with you, you know. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. Oh, I'm not, I'm not Jewish. Oh, you're not. Did you think I was Jewish? Oh. Yes, I did. Because of Bird. Yes, because of because Bird. Because of Bird, yes. yeah. I've often wondered, you know, would people really think that? Yes, and, and you did nothing to perpetuate that, did you? Well, no, I mean, well, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. Oh, how about on my birthday? Mazel tov, Larry. Well, you're Jewish. Yeah. I'm uh, respectful. On, on the high holy days, I said, hey, you going to Templeburg? And you went, no. Right, because I'm, I'm not Jewish, so yeah. why would I go to Templeburg? <laughs> right, like, I'm a Jew, but not a practicing Jew. Oi, Larry, with this. Oi, again, see? It's an expression. There's another, it's an expression. It's an expression that what people use. What is this use? thing? A shofar. Why is this on your desk? People give me gifts. They'll give me like that for my desk or the mezuzah that's on the door. What are you, by the way? Well, I'm Swedish. I got a Swede lawyer? She's going to get everything. You, you got a good lawyer. You got the best lawyer, Larry. Sorry, Berg. It's a Shonda, Larry. Is there something in your career that you said no to that you now wish in retrospect you had said yes to? Oh, shit. I mean, there were a bunch of auditions that I I turned down that I probably should not have because, you know, at the time it was, you know, I was a, uh, a comedy snob or whatever. But in reality, I was, uh, you know, very fear driven. And so I was scared to go audition for this thing. <laughs> Um, and I can't think of, I, there's like nothing, there's nothing major like, oh no, I could have been a part of that specific thing, but there are jobs that, 
I would happily have now that at the time I, I was like, I'm just coming off of Mr. Show and, you know, I'm like a hot shit, you know, cool guy from the cool show. And now thinking about it, like, oh, that would have been fun. <laughs> it's interesting to think of the downside of, of starting on the coolest show as maybe uh oh man you... it spoiled me it absolutely spoiled me and and you know gave me it, it it allowed me to have an inflated sense of self that i absolutely did not deserve <laughs> it was completely unwarranted you know but yeah i i'm i can't say that i had anything that was like you know, then in, in, in terms of like major stars turning something down, like I think Burt Reynolds turning down terms of endearment or something right, like it's that. Nothing like, like that. No, no, I don't have anything like that. Um, it, what about the flip side? Anything you said yes to that, you now kind of think, Oh, maybe I should have said no to that. That's really tough because there have been things, there have been things that were maybe not enjoyable, but I can't say I'm not glad I did them. Like the the real time thing, I'm still glad that I did that. I, and I'll, I'll t- like here's a perfect example because I did that show. I met um, a guy named Ken Crosby who was in a similar position to me of of working on a show that he really should not have been working on because he was supposed to book. They also had a segment that they did away with where they would have a a comedian or a music act at the end of the show. And then they, the second season, they did away with that. And Ken was responsible for booking that sort of variety performer. And he and I became fast friends. And then one time he invited me to a group hang at this place called the Cafe des Artistes, which isn't there anymore in L.A. He said, hey, we're, you know, on Sunday, we're going to meet up with some friends. Why don't you come? And so I, start, I became a regular part of that group on Sundays. And then one day, this, uh, this girl walks in who I was immediately struck by. And she was there. We were, I was leaving as she was arriving. So we overlapped briefly and we chatted for a little bit and I was just really taken with her and she is now my wife. And so if I had not done real time, I don't think I would have met her, you know? And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's always, you know, I, I, I'm at a point in my life where I have a, a, a wonderful vantage point to look back and say, oh, but if this hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened. You know, you never know what one thing is going to lead to. And, you know, so I don't, uh, although there have been things that I've enjoyed more than others, there's nothing I really, I can't say there's anything. Uh, I mean, if I looked at my IMDb, I could probably tell you <laughs> there's not, I don't think there's anything I flat out regret having done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, so nice. Bill Maher set you up with your wife. Uh, yes. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> I know you don't believe in marriage, but it really worked out for me. Uh, finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? I'm just, I'm just thinking about every time I bombed on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Where, you know, I, I got to, I remember seeing somebody else who was an established comedian known entity on this same show that I was on. It was a, it was a sort of variety show. Uh, and he was doing this bit and man, it was not going over. And I looked at him and I realized he thinks it's funny how bad he's bombing. Like he knows he's bombing. He's not trying to bomb what he's doing something and he genuinely thinks is funny. It's not going over, but I can see in his eyes that he's, he's already there. Like this is funny how poorly I'm doing. Yeah. It doesn't it's feel hard good. To, it's but hard it, to feel that way in the moment, right? Yeah. It's hard to, and I was like, that's where I got to get to. I got to get to that point where it's like, this sucks, but it's also, it sucks so bad. It's funny. And, um, you know, I, I've had, I've had many, many, many times on stage, 
that I was just eating shit and and you know it it's it's an eternity man when you are bombing on stage time stops and you realize oh no I have to do so much more time before I'm <laughs> able to leave because that's the contract oh I I got one it was doing the the Melbourne Comedy Festival I had to do um uh the same hour six nights a week for a month there was one night where there were i think five people in the audience and i went out there and from the moment i walked out on stage i could tell they're not into me they this is not going to go good and i started i did not get a single laugh i pulled a stool over and i was like well i just gotta i gotta get through this and i did my same hour but i i lowered the the energy made it more conversational and I, I can vividly see this one guy, like a guy in his 50s, polo shirt, jeans, f- folded arms, bald glasses, uh, just staring at me. And it was this weird thing where we were both like, we've made a deal. We've made a deal that we're going to do this. I'm not going to enjoy this, but I'm going to watch it all. I'm not going to leave. <laughs> And for my part, well, I you don't like this, but I'm still going to do it for an hour. And at the time, I, I cannot tell you how much it sucked. <laughs> how much it sucked. And now it's hilarious to me. And I was glad that I was able to, I had been doing it long enough at that point. This was like 2006, I think, something like that. Um I was able to, no, it, was, it must have been like 2012. I was able to close the gap between the bad feeling and it being funny. So almost at the point where it was funny to me on stage how badly it was going, but not quite there yet. Because I did not do any commentary on how it was going. I did not say, wow, this really sucks, right? I just acted like... <laughs> Would you do that now? I don't, I honestly don't know. Because that was such a weird, unique experience that I'm like, maybe I would just plow ahead and act like it was, act like we were all having a great time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was so I strange. I wonder who was forcing that man to watch you uh, do an hour of comedy. Man, I don't know. But he and the three other people, they were just like, yeah, we're, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're hating this, but we're not leaving. <laughs> You're sitting there hoping that everybody just gets up and leaves so you can stop. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was honestly, it was a game of chicken. It was really like, let's see who <laughs> swerves first. And we just crashed into each other and died. <laughs> well... Paul, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like you lived up to your reputation that you don't believe. And um, it's been so fun having you on the podcast. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Thank you so much, Matt. But it was a real pleasure. All right. Thanks so much to Paul F. Tompkins, who won't be listening to this episode, but I can assure him he lived up to the hype. Paul will be appearing as part of several shows during SF Sketchfest this month and next in San Francisco. And you can get tickets to all of them at sfsketchfest.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who's coming up next on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by ACAST for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.